Well, four summers ago, we saw one of the most amazing rescue missions in recent history. It happened in Thailand. It happened when some boys, a soccer team, were out playing a practice game and their coach, so there were 13 of them out there practicing and they decided after the practice they wanted to go explore a nearby cave. They went to the cave that wasn't too far from the soccer field and when they started moving into the cave, it wasn't long afterwards it started to rain. Now it wasn't a little bit of a drizzle, it was coming down in buckets. It wasn't quite monsoon season in Thailand but these rains were monsoon-like. And these boys were in the cave, not knowing what was happening outside. As the rain started to come down, it washed down the mountainside, started filling every crook and crevice and flowing into the cave. The boys had no other option but to keep moving deeper and deeper into the cave. Well, what happened next is nothing short of miraculous. Word started to spread that these boys were in the cave. Cell phones started to blow up. Cell phones of expert divers that knew how to do this kind of rescue mission. So they started to pack their bags. They started to get on their planes and they started to converge on this cave in Thailand. It was only within a couple days of the boys being there, these divers now started to move into the cave that was flooded. And they would go and they would start swimming with their scuba gear, their lights, and a rope so that they could start attaching it to the edge of the cave. They worked their ways in, their way in, and then periodically they would come to a hollow, a cavern, and they'd poke their head up and they'd cry out, is anyone here? Of course, no one was. And they slowly, finally moved into the cave. They got further and further in. And then it was Cave Nine. They lifted their head in the cavern, cried out, and there they saw the 12 soccer boys huddled into a corner, gaunt, tired, scared, but alive. The divers just stared at them, took the pictures, and then had to leave. They get out of the cave. The watching world is waiting to hear and they get the word that the boys are alive. But the question was, how? How are we gonna get those boys out of the cave? How are we gonna bring them from where they are in cave nine all the way to the surface? They had already lost one expert diver who died trying to rescue these boys. So they started to reflect on how this would be. So if you can imagine this mile and a half, expert divers struggling, and these boys who really didn't know how to swim had never worn scuba gear, and now they're going to try to do something that was even dangerous for expert divers. Well, one of the divers was an anesthesiologist. 
And they started talking and discussing this idea. What if, what if we sedated the boys, tied their hands so that if they did wake up, they wouldn't thrash and pull anybody else under with them? Thought it was too risky. It was a crazy idea. They turned this around over the next couple of days. Over the next few days, they were wrestling with how are we going to get them out. It was decided they would do exactly that. So the next thing you know, they go back into this cave deep in there. They sedate each boy. They tie his arms, tie his legs up, a diver in front, a diver in back, and they start bringing them out of the cave, keeping the mask on them, pulling them through, following the rope, and all 13 boys were rescued, the 12 players and the coach. The world exploded as they came out of the cave. And as you know, what would happen next? They all start pointing to these expert divers as heroes. But they would have none of it. They kept pointing to, it wasn't us. The real heroes are the 7,000 volunteers that were making food, praying, seeking help, and clearing the woods and doing all that was necessary to make this rescue possible. Then finally, there were these words that were splattered. At least one person said this. They were lost. They were found. They were rescued. And you hear those words, and I know what you're thinking, because I thought it. That's our story. We were lost. We were lost in our sin. We were lost in our mess. We were found by God, and we were rescued by Jesus Christ. What an amazing story as we think about all of this. And this morning we want to go into this new series and talk about the church. The church right now, as we see it in our country, is obviously there's a lot of turmoil. There's people looking at the world, at the world looking at the church and saying, what a mess. They are so full of themselves. They are so crazy. Then inside the church, people are saying, oh, I can live however I want. I can go to church. I don't have to go to church. I can make church whatever I want it to be. And so the story goes. Well, this morning, what I want to do is begin the series, and I want to ask three questions over the next three weeks. First question is this. What is the church? Or not what is a church. What church? What church? Is it the church you create in your mind? Is it the church that you think it should be? Is it the church and just what church? Next week, I want to talk about why church. And the third week, I want to talk about why church now. So in order to dive into this question, what church, I need you to open with me to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation chapter 2, chapter 2, 
If you have a device, I really want to encourage you, get on that device, get a Bible app. There's some Bibles on the chairs, but you don't want to miss this. We are going to be in some apocalyptic literature. I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But this is a powerful, powerful, powerful word from God. And just a few moments ago, Krista prayed for us that we would hear from God. God is speaking. And it is exciting because if you think that rescue mission of those boys in Thailand was exciting... Wow, you can't even imagine the rescue mission that God has moving forward right now and what it's going to look like in years to come. If you're able to stand, could I invite you to stand? Let me read chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But, but, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, we just pray right now again that you would speak. It's no accident that the people you wanted here are here to hear your message this day to the good of their soul. So God, we ask that you would give us those ears to hear. Let us have eyes to really see not just this world, but the world that moves this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may grab a seat. So this is apocalyptic literature. Now what that means, I know it's a big word, we don't use that very often, but what it means, it, it, it's talking about things often of revelation, that's why the book's called that, that God wants to reveal in a very special or unique way. And that unique way includes lots of pictures. Pictures that some people try to paint, but you can't paint them. They're pictures that are piled on top of each other so that they kindle our imagination and get our blood flowing and our juices going so that we can be excited about what God is doing because God wants to encourage us in these last days. He wants us to be on fire for him so he needs to encourage us he wants his people to persevere when it gets difficult and so this kind of literature in the book of revelation is designed that way with these dramatic pictures and bringing us to a place where we can be encouraged but also a place to endure so the question we have this morning as we look at this literature is what church what church and the first idea that I'd like to drive home is the church where Jesus walks among the people. The church where Jesus walks among the people. Now, as we look at this, 
this morning. Let me pull up here this verse, and we, we see in verse 1, it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, I don't have time to comment on every part of this book, this amazing book that we're looking at, the book of Revelation, to talk about it, but certainly part of apocalyptic literature is this idea of angels. Angels are usually part of the literature. So when you read the book of Revelation, there's lots of angels involved. Then we've got the church at Ephesus that we see going on. And he says here, the words of him. The words of him. Now this him is described in the verses before. So if you'll look with me in the verses before, verses of chapter 1, verses 13 uh, to 17. Look what it says. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. So we got this one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest was a golden sash. So you begin to get this mental picture. You're beginning to see something. But this picture is drawn right out of the book of Daniel. What John is doing as he's writing this, as he's recording it, because the angel's involved, and we'll talk about that in a moment, is that there's one like the Son of Man, just like we read in Daniel chapter 7. And this is pointing us to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Right? And he's clothed in a robe. Now, some people say this wants to be like a picture of a... Uh, a priest. But you know what? When you read this, there's no idea of a temple right here. There's no priestly role right here. What you really have are the robes of someone who is a figure like a ruler. Someone who is a powerful figure. And then you get this golden sash. And this comes out of Daniel chapter 10. And so you get this idea of regal authority. Someone who's powerful. So you see him in these long robes. Today it would be someone in this three-piece suit, a strong-breasted suit. You know, not a $500 suit, not a $1,000 suit. But if you could imagine a suit that's $10,000 or $15,000, right? That's what we're talking about here is something that's very regal, something that's very powerful. Then he says, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. And here's just more pictures piled on. And they don't want us to paint a picture of an old guy with white hair, but what they want is us to see, here's a person with wisdom. Here's a person that has experienced life. Here's someone that has the insight that's necessary. Because in a culture like the ancient culture, White hair was a symbol of someone who was wise, someone who had lived some life, someone who had endured some pain. And so here's the picture of this one that is there. And again, it's taken right out of Daniel. But look what he says next. His, his eyes were like flames of fire. You, you know what that's like. This is something not just looking at fire, fires coming out of his eye like he's angry. No, this is a person who has insight into the human condition. This is the person, and you've seen them, you've experienced this. Someone looks at you and you feel like they're looking right into your soul. That's what he's talking about here. This is the one who can just look 
And he knows with tremendous insight what's going on in the world today. His feet were like burnished bronze. We could say more about that, but it's talking about the stability and strength. His voice was like the sound of many waters. There's authority with this one. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and these are the seven angels that they bring out in the next couple of verses. And out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. The sword is the sword of judgment, a sword of the Word, the sword of the Word of God that is clarity. It has focus, and it begins to put everything into perspective perspective. It's the sword, the word that shows us how to live. It's the word that directs our paths. It's a word coming from Jesus Christ because he is the word. It says then his face was like sun shining in its strength. And what do you get right there? You get this picture of this one with glory right? The radiance. You think of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai and there's just this radiant glory, the Shekinah glory they call it. So this one, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And look what happens to John. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, right? What happens when you see the real Jesus? When you see him in his glory, we're all going to fall on our face. We're all going to just bow before him. There'll be nothing left to be said. And so what John is doing here is we look at verse 1. He's talking about this one, the angel of the church, the words of him who holds the seven stars, the angels who are bringing the message. The angels are the messengers. And why? Because we're told in chapter 1, verse 11, that these angels are recording this in heaven. John is recording it for the earth. The angels are recording it for heaven. What you need to know and what I need to know is that the church is a serious place. And there is a record being kept. There's a record being kept in heaven and there's a record being kept here on earth. Look what he says. And in his right hand, his hand of power, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And of course, as we've read the passage this morning, we see that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. We're only going to look at three of them over the next couple of weeks. But what we begin to see here is that this Jesus walks among the churches. He walks among these seven churches. Now, what does the idea of walking mean? It means that Jesus is present It means that he's examining what's going on in the church. It means he's checking it out. And of course, what John was writing, what God wanted for us was these seven churches also represent churches today. And Jesus is walking among his church. He's examining. He's looking at what's happening. He's checking it out. But then notice, it goes a little bit further. So when we ask the question, what church? Well, the church where Jesus is walking around. Let me say secondly, the church where Jesus knows what's happening. Where Jesus knows what's happening. Now you and I know that Jesus knows. So when I say that Jesus knows everything, what I'm talking about here is that Jesus is intimately acquainted with what's happening in every church. He sees how the leaders are leading. 
He sees how the people are living. That's what we're talking about here. So he says in verse 2, he says, I know your works and your toil. Right? He, he, he's well aware of what is going on here. So let me look at this a little tighter. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patience. Right? So he starts listing these things out. He sees how you have suffered and you have persevered. He's watching what people are going through in these last days. He knows the trials and the tribulations. And then he goes on and says, how you cannot bear those who are evil. But what's happened in the church today, when we talk about what church, we're talking about what's happened is the church has allowed so much of the world to seep into it. And we often, unfortunately, look more like the world than like the bride of Christ. But this church... He says, I see you can't bear to let the world seep into your church. I see it. Look what he says. But you've tested. You've tested those who call themselves apostles. This church at Ephesus, they were discerning people. They weren't going to be fooled. They weren't going to be pulled in by the nonsense. They tested. They discerned. Now, when we read this word apostles, the word apostles gets used in a lot of ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it's used of the twelve. Sometimes it's used of like itinerant preachers. People going around and preaching the good news. They're messengers because that's what the word Apostles mean. It means someone who's been sent out. So it could be people like that. Sometimes it's other leaders, these apostles, these messengers. But this church was discerning. This church paid attention to what was happening. And they said, look how he says, if they've tested who call themselves apostles and are not. Do we have the courage to call it out and say what is not and found them to be false? False teachers, false apostles. Now don't be deceived. It doesn't mean they weren't saying the right things. It doesn't say that they weren't doing some things. Anybody can call out something that looks ridiculously crazy wrong. But it takes discernment to find those things that look pretty good but are still false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. Right? So they, they feel all of this going on. Church where Jesus knows what's happening. Church where people are discerning. I've already said I think too much of the church has seeped into, too much of the world has seeped into the church. But what are we talking about when we say that? Could I be a little more specific? I know you're thinking that. You're like, come on, let, let's get down into the weeds on some of this. I think it's important. Well, we begin to see this in 2 Timothy in the last days, right? We're living in the last days. 
from the time of Christ to the present and forward until He returns. These are the last days. These are the end times. We have entered it. And He says this, in the last days, people will be lovers of self. There is no place in the church of Jesus Christ for people to be loving themselves. But our world focuses on the self. It's all about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about my needs. Paul writes a little more. They're lovers of money. It's all about what I can grab, what I can hold on to, what I can keep. They're boastful, arrogant, unloving. He goes on and he talks about this. And these people in the church at Ephesus were discerning this. They could see this. It was in front of them. You know what Paul says to do in 2 Timothy chapter 3? He says, avoid those people. And that's what the church at Ephesus was doing. That's what the church at Ephesus was doing. They were avoiding some of that. There's no place in the church for people to be enamored with themselves. No place in the church for us to make much of ourselves. How can we sing, He is worthy of it all, and make much of us? You can't. You can't. Too many in the church want to be in the limelight. They want too many likes. They want too many followers on Instagram. They're chasing after these things. It's way more than about communication these days, isn't it? Sometimes we talk about celebrity pastors. Let me just be really clear. There's no place in the church that Jesus planted for that. There's one celebrity in the church. One celebrity. And it's Jesus Christ. And this church at Ephesus was getting the picture But let's go a little further. It's not only the church where Jesus walks. It's not only the church Jesus knows what's happening, but it's the church where Jesus sets the course. Where Jesus sets the course. It says here in verse 4, but I have this against you. We have this against you. Let's dive a little deeper into these couple verses here because it's important to see what's going on. He says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, the name of the church that we're talking about is Ephesus. You've probably read the letter to Ephesians. The very last verse, in the very last chapter, in the book of Ephesians, it says that they loved the Lord Jesus Christ. 30, maybe 40 years later, we're reading right here, they have abandoned that love. Jesus Christ is no longer the celebrity of the church. But let's put it in love terms. People were no longer delighting first and foremost in Jesus Christ. At Fox Valley Church, we close every service with the same thing. And you know what it is. Remember Remember, Jesus changes everything. It's about Jesus. It's 
when we talk about what church, it's the church that recognizes that Jesus sets the course. Look what he says. He says, remember. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Remember the days when you took delight in God. Remember the days you delighted in Him. Remember the days when you came to church and you came with this anticipation and this excitement. What is God going to say to me today? What is God going to do in the midst? Who can I come and love on today? Remember, he says. And then he says, repent. Turn away from loving yourself. Turn away from making much of people. Turn away. Live differently. Remember in the book of Genesis chapter 8, God causes this flood and Noah and his family are out in this ark with all these animals. It says in Genesis chapter 8 verse 1, it says God remembers. But it doesn't mean like, hey, God forgot. (laughs) God doesn't forget. He doesn't get amnesia. He certainly doesn't have any form of dementia. Remember in the Old Testament and in the New has the idea of action. It's a way to say God is now calling for action. I recall where things are and I'm ready to take action. And that's what happens in Genesis chapter 8. God immediately, okay, rain, stop. And then what does he do? He blows a wind so he could start drying things out. And, and you all know the story. He's saying here, remember and then repent. Repentance is calling it out as sin. God, I, I've made too much of myself. God, I, I, I've thought that I was the center of the universe. God, I really thought the family revolved around me. God, I really think that I'm the head of the home and I'm the boss and everybody bows down to me. Like, what is that nonsense, right? Turn away. And then look what he says. And then do. Do the works you did at first. Now can I just say what happens? If you do not... I will remove your lampstand. What he's talking about here, closing the church. Closing the church. Now, don't be fooled. A church can keep on operating, but it's really closed. The Spirit is no longer the one working and changing things. So when we talk about the church at Fox Valley Church, we want to be a church that deals with the real stuff the Bible's talking about. How do you find out if someone has lost their first love? That's hard, isn't it? That's why we talk about life groups at Fox Valley Church. That's why at Fox Valley Church it becomes really important that you get connected at a deeper level and you give people permission to ask you some hard questions. That's why at Fox Valley Church we're trying to take these things deeper and say, let's really connect with each other on a weekly basis. Let's give each other permission to speak into our lives and ask the questions. You know the illustration of an iceberg. An iceberg is huge, right? But only 10% of it's above the surface. 90% of it is below the surface. 90% of what we show people is below the surface. We don't let them see what's really going on. And we got to ask, we got to let people ask us that. And that's what we want to do in our life groups. 
That's why we make a big deal out of them is because we know that there's got to be a place where I can be real and tell people, here's where I keep falling or here's where I need help. Here's where I need brothers to support me. That becomes really, really significant. I do know that someday Jesus is returning. And it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, here's the goal of Fox Valley Church because it's the goal of the Scriptures. We proclaim Jesus Christ, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone complete in Christ. Our goal is to help people move into maturity. We want to see people grow. So the church really is a rescue mission. The church really is rescuing us out of darkness, rescuing us from ourselves, rescuing us from the sin that controls us so that we can live freely, empowered by the Spirit unto the glory of God, so that we can be mature in Christ. So this is the church that we're after in Fox Valley Church, the church where Jesus Christ is truly the head, where Jesus Christ is present and we sense his presence and we seek his presence where he's walking among us where he knows what's happening in an intimate way and dealing with it so that he can call us out so that we as a church can listen and where jesus truly truly sets the course that's where life groups come in that we could work together well we're going to pick this up next week we're going to pick it up in not only looking at what church But now next week, why the church is so important at this moment in history. More significant than you and I could ever imagine. God has something good, and he's revealing it to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the power of your word. And God, we want, as we see in the scriptures, to be overcomers. There's an eternal destiny John talks about that we could be in this paradise. We could be in heaven forever with Jesus Christ. So God, as we seek your way and your will, we ask again that you would guide us in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.